0: Hello everybody, welcome to episode 49 of the Ask Abhijit Show. I hope you are all doing well. It's great to be back with you this Saturday evening here in India. So let's see who all we have with us. I can see Rajat, Kingster Gaming, Harsh Jain, Ayush Sharma, Indo Kanak, Harshit, Gujar, Animations, Eagle Eye, Yash Lothra, AJ Rana, Rohan Gupta, Times, Play with Pranub, Shivaji Raje Bluebird03, Akhand Bharat, Ajinkya, Chandana, Harsh, Sharma, Vishwakarma, Vallabh, Mr. Godzilla, Dhruvdesai, Ravi, Uniform Tango, Anurag, Tanmay, Neha, Pragyan, Amrinder, Pranav, Sahil, S2 Vlogs, Sanjit, Kumar, Gupta, Dungar Singh, Chauhan, Deepan Bhattacharya, uh, Ashok, Kumar, Debosman, Sumant Das, Shubham Arya, Varad Dongre, Prem Tripathi, Sudha Pandey, Harshal Kakode, Akash, Akash Rathor, Akash Yadav, Rushi, Prashant Sharma and so many more. Aparna, it's great to see you all. Thank you so much for being here. So, what shall we talk about, my friends? We shall talk about whatever you wish to talk about. What questions do you have? What do you want to discuss? Let's see what you all are commenting. Let's see. All right. Let's take a look at a few comments. Let us see. Let us see. Let us see. I can see lots of highs and hellos. Okay. Okay. Let's start uh, somewhere here. Like, okay. This is by Varad Dongre. Varad says. Varad asks. Did India have any trade relations with Carthage? Also, was there any military exchange? Considering the extensive use of war elephants in war strategy. So, for those of you who don't know, Carthage is a uh, was a a very prominent city city state civilization you could say in northern africa and they were uh, very uh, strong rivals and uh, adversaries of the roman empire and uh, hannibal barca one of the Carth- uh, one of the generals of carthage actually invaded italy invaded the roman empire inflicted a number of massive defeats on the roman military uh, machine But he was eventually defeated and eventually Carthage was invaded successfully by the Roman empires and razed to the ground. So that is what Carthage was. It's I think in Morocco in North Africa, presently Morocco, I think somewhere there. So did India have any trade relations with Carthage? I do not know because Carthage was entirely destroyed, annihilated by the Roman empire. And if there was any such trade relations or any such thing, all the traces, all the evidence has been destroyed by the Romans about 2100 or so years ago. So we don't know whether we had trade relations or military exchange or anything like that with the Carthaginians. We do know there was extensive trade between India and the Roman Empire. We have found lots of Roman coins, Roman uh, jugs, amphorae in India. And there is a there is plenty of evidence of Indian uh, artifacts in Italy, in in Rome. They have even they even fo- archaeologists even found a a figurine a, figurine, a statuette uh, that seems to depict the goddess Lakshmi or or some Indian goddess in the ruined city of Pompeii. Pompeii, if you know, it was an ancient Roman city that was. Uh, destroyed by Mount Vesuvius, the eruption of the volcano Mount Vesuvius, about 2,000 years before today, approximately. So there was extensive uh, trade, cultural exchange, etc., between India and Rome. It is possible, since Carthage was not that far, it was just across the Mediterranean, south of Rome, south of Italy. So it's certainly possible that there may have been uh, trade and other contacts between India and Carthage. We know that India has a very ancient history of contacts with, with Africa. Um, we find Indian zebu cattle in Africa. we find evidence of zebu cattle in Egypt, I think about 2000 BCE or thereabouts you know so so it's it's very possible that there may have been trade relations between India and Carthage. Unfortunately, we don't seem to have found any traces of that because Carthage was destroyed, flattened by the Romans. Uh, They had vowed to destroy Carthage entirely and they were able to succeed in that. So I hope that answers your question. Of course, it's not a definitive answer, but that's the evidence that we have as of today. Right, let's see some more questions. Uniform Tango asks, why was warfare technology so poor in India during the late ancient and early Medieval eras of history. I'm not sure what exactly you mean by late ancient. Ancient is very ancient. I mean, India's uh, history, the archaeological record goes back 10,000 years. So I'm not sure what exactly you mean by ancient. But when we talk about the medieval era of history, early medieval, I think you're talking about the uh, period of history that's about 1,000 years before today, around 1,000 AD, 1,000 CE. So that is when you had these Turkic invasions, wave upon wave of Turkic invasions into India. And eventually, India India did fall to the Turkic invasions, these multiple waves of Turkic invasions. The thing is that it wasn't India's warfare technology that was poor. India had excellent warriors, excellent armies. We had excellent technology as well. Some people have claimed that uh, we did not have sufficient horses perhaps but even that doesn't seem to be true that the reason why india fell to these invasions is because india was not united and because that's the reason number one reason number two is that our uh, kings leaders etc were unnecessarily generous and magnanimous towards the enemy they forgot that it was their, it is their duty it is the king's duty or the queen's duty to serve their people and their kingdom. So the, so the long-term prosperity of the people and the kingdom has to be placed above everything else, above showing mercy towards your enemy. So, for instance, that uh, that uh, guy, what's his name? Ghori, right? Uh, Mahmood. Uh, was it Ghori? Was it Ghaznavi? One of those two guys? Uh, he invaded India multiple times. Uh, one of the uh, first invasions during one of his first invasions uh, maharani nayaki devi uh, rajput queen of gujarat i think of gujarat yes she met this guy in open battle she led the army in in battle in in the in the battle so she was there at the front of the army and there was this battle and he was defeated right he was defeated his army was destroyed and she allowed him to go back to afghanistan to ghazni ghaznavi right mahmud ghaznavi the ghaznavi terrorist so maharani Naiki devi showed magnanimity she forgave him and she allowed him to go back to afghanistan when his army was destroyed when he had lost the battle it was certainly possible for her to order her troops, her cavalry, etc., to go pursue the guy and kill him, finish him off. Finish him off. She did not do that. He escaped. Later on, he came back to India in another invasion. This time, Sri Prithviraj Chauhan defeated him and forgave him and let him go. And see, these are the reasons why India eventually fell to these Turkic invasions. It's not because of poor technology or any such thing. We had the we had excellent technology we had excellent warriors we had better resources than any ragtag barbarian from central asia its the the problem was that we had our leaders had forgotten what their real duty was and because they were not united they were all at cross purposes so these are the reasons why india lost it's not because of poor Uh, technology. Yeah, people do get the impression that we were our technology and everything was poor at the time, but that's not the case. Right, let's take some more questions. Shivaji Rajay asks how many questions do we have here? Uh, Sir, when are you making a video about Nehru and Congress, 99 blunders, history of Arunachal and why China claims it? Can we use christian missionaries to solve the kashmir issue and was jayachand a traitor okay um okay let me answer a couple of these questions when am i making a video about nehru and all his blunders uh, that's that's a good suggestion maybe i will do it soon history of arunachal that's a long story uh, why china claims it they claim it because they want more and more territory they want to keep india on the back foot This is one of the uh, tactics, one of the strategies that you use in geopolitics. It is something that China is really adept at. They have used the same against Russia in the past in the 1960s, etc. And they paid a heavy price for that, actually. And now they're doing it against India. They're doing the same thing in the South China Sea. Salami slicing, creeping, uh, normalcy, that sort of thing, you know. So this is a tried and tested strategy of China. And one of the other reasons why they they claim Arunachal Pradesh is because Arunachal Pradesh has this town of Tawang which is one of the um, major cultural centers of the Tibetan culture. The 6th Dalai Lama was born in Tawang. And therefore they want the city of Tawang to claim legitimacy over Tibetan Buddhism see the his holiness the, the dalai lama is uh, quite elderly now i i think he is in his 80s now if i'm not mistaken so maybe he has another 20 years to live maybe 30 if 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 uh, if he lives an exceptionally long life but you know he is now at the stage where he needs to decide about his succession who's going to be the next dalai lama and the the way the next dalai lama is chosen is that once the current Dalai Lama passes away. He is believed to be reborn in a in the uh, shape of a newborn Tibetan child. And then the uh, Tibetan uh, clergy, the Lamas, etc., they, they search the entire country for a child that has certain signs. And those signs are all predefined, etc. So when they discover a child that has those signs, those characteristics, then they uh, confer the title of the new Dalai Lama to the child. So it's a succession across births. That is a tradition in Tibet. So it is all in the hands of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, right now to declare where He will reincarnate. Will he reincarnate in Tibet, in Chinese-occupied Tibet? Or will he reincarnate in the diaspora outside of Tibet? Maybe in Tawang, maybe in Arunachal Pradesh, maybe somewhere else. So this is the succession that the Chinese are worried about because they want to appoint their own Dalai Lama. And if the current Dalai Lama says that that is illegitimate, then the Chinese uh, attempt to hijack the institution of the Dalai Lama will fail or it will not have sufficient legitimacy. The Chinese want to uh, take over this institution of the Dalai Lama. They want to take over the birthplace of the sixth Dalai Lama, who is one of the most prominent Dalai Lamas, and so on. So these are the reasons, these are some of the reasons why China is claiming Arunachal Pradesh. They want to keep India on the back foot, geopolitically, militarily, etc. They want to reclaim, uh, not reclaim, they want to usurp the last uh, bastion, the last stronghold of Tibetan Buddhism from the Tibetans, because India has uh, given shelter to the Tibetans. They have they have been able to make India their home, hopefully temporarily. Hopefully they'll go back to Tibet when it's uh, free again. So these are some of the reasons why China is playing these games. Uh, the other questions. Uh, can we use Christian missionaries to solve the Kashmir issue? That's a very creative suggestion. I am not sure how one would do that, but yeah, it's something. Well, that's a that's an out of the box suggestion. Very interesting. I must applaud the creative thinking. Maybe it's something that could be used. You can. There are. There's a multitude of strategies and tactics one can use to solve a given problem. So maybe this is an interesting, uh, interesting way of looking at it. And the last question is: Was Jayachand Chand a traitor? Maharaj Jayachandra was not a traitor. He has been portrayed as a traitor in that uh, stupid poem written by Chanda Bardai, in which uh, he said that Jai Chand, uh, was an anti-national uh, traitor, etc. He also claims that Prithviraj Chauhan killed that uh, that uh, what was he? Ghaznavi was he or Gori? One of those two. I think it was Ghaznavi. He, wa- he was taken to Ghazni, but he was but he was able to kill. Mahmud Ghaznavi and all, that's all nonsense. So, the truth is that Maharaj Jayachandra was not a traitor, but he has been unfairly portrayed like that because of that poem, this Chand Bardai wrote. All right, let's take some more questions. Guys, girls, questions, questions, come on. Oh, I can see there are lots of questions. I think I missed a few of those. Let me find some. All right, let's see some. Questions. Vishal Mahajan says, what do you think about the India-Bangladesh enclaves swap in 2015? Was it a right move? Keeping in mind India's relations with Bangladesh. So that's a very good question. If you look at the India-Bangladesh border, there are all these enclaves and enclaves within enclaves and all that we had in the past. I think there's still a lot of um, complicated uh, boundary boundaries right now, even now between India and Bangladesh. But you had all these ridiculous enclaves between. So what's an enclave? An enclave is a territory that belongs to one nation, but it is within the territory of another nation. So it's like an island of sorts. And you had these hundreds of enclaves, Indian enclaves in Bangladeshi territory and Bangladeshi enclaves in Indian territory. And it's all something that was left over from history. But that made things incredibly complicated. And so in 2015, there was a major swap of enclaves that has significantly reduced the complexity of the, of the india Bangladesh border. I think it was a good thing. We need to keep things as simple as possible, especially when you have a nation that is, well, historically has been part of your country, country of your territory, etc. It's always good to keep things simple so that there are no unnecessary complications. And uh, there's no unnecessary controversy. So it is a good move. I think most of it has been solved now. I think it was a very good move. And uh, we need to work on the relationship with with Bangladesh, especially the border, which needs to be closed, I hope, one of these days. So, yeah. So I think it was a good move. Mm, Let's see some more questions. Uh, Karthik asks, was Gandhi's effort to bring freedom in Africa genuine? Why he fought in Africa? Uh, Mohandas Gandhi did not ever try to, uh, uh, to obtain freedom for the people of Africa. He did not ever do that. Uh, if you look at his own writings, he considered uh, the uh, native people of Africa to be lower than the white people. The whites and the Indians. He clearly wrote this that um, he believed that the white race or the European race should be the predominating race. The Indians should come second, and uh, he considered the African people to be the lowest of the races. So, you know, this is this is racism. There's no other way to put it. This is something that he himself wrote. It is in his in his own writings. It is available online if you know where to look. Uh, There is this website called The Collected Works of Mohandas Gandhi or Mahatma Gandhi, whatever. So you can look it up there. All his writings are available online for free. It's tedious to to read through it, but it's all there. Now, some people say that, you know what, Gandhi changed afterwards. He may have held certain beliefs when he was younger, but afterwards he became a proponent of uh, humanitarianism and freedom for all and peace and and, uh, what's it called? Nonviolence. And compassion and equality and all that nonsense. My point is very simple. I agree that people do change. What the things I may have believed 20 years ago are not what I believe today. I have evolved over the past two, or two decades. Everybody evolves. Everybody evolves. If you don't evolve, we, I mean, something's wrong with you. So, yes, people do evolve. But when somebody like Mohandas Gandhi, a very prominent person, put something in writing that he may later think was wrong, then he would write about it again and say and put it on the record that, yes, I believed these things 20 years ago, 25 years ago, but today I have realized I was wrong. It was wrong to think that way. But he never did that. He never expressed any form of regret for the things that he wrote and the things that he put out in the public domain about the African people. If he had a change of heart later on, if he felt that what I said was wrong, it was racist, it was was not the right thing to say, then he would have apologized or he would have at least said that I was wrong, I was young, I was immature and today I understand that such beliefs that certain people, based on the color of their skin, are inferior to us. That belief is completely wrong. He never did that. And therefore, he is a racist. So it's clear as day that he never changed his mind. He never wrote anything uh, that went against what he had written about the Africans. So the thing is, he never tried to bring freedom to the people of Africa. And uh, he served the British for 20-25 years in South Africa. And because of his service for such a long period of time, the British brought him to India, put him at the head of the Congress Party and gave him the task of shepherding and delaying India's uh, India's uh, quest for independence. So that's about Mr. Gandhi. Papai Sardar says, did Hind... Uh, will Hinduism vanish in the next 100 years? It is a a definite possibility. It is a definite possibility that Hinduism will vanish or become uh, marginalized or become a minority uh, culture in India in the next 100 years. Because see, Hinduism is not like the Abrahamic religions. Hinduism is not expansionist. Hinduism doesn't believe in converting people aggressively or even non-aggressively. So and and Hinduism doesn't believe in violence and fighting back and all that. And because of the Gandhian ideology, et cetera, the people of India, the Hindus, especially, have become extremely passive, react, non-reactive and so on. And these other religions are definitely expanding very aggressively. They have enormous amounts of funding coming from coming in from various parts of the world. So their footprint is increasing. Hinduism is decreasing. Hinduism is something that needs state support. It's always been that way for the past God knows how many thousands of years. Without state support, something like Hinduism will shrivel away, vanish and die. And today, as you know, there is absolutely no state support for Hinduism. The government doesn't support Hinduism in any shape or form. Even the Hindu temples are being uh, looted by the government. I mean, there's no other way to put it. There's no other way to put it the Hindu temples are all in the uh, are all hijacked by the government. They are administered by the government. Hindus don't have the right to run their own temples, to administer their own temples. And whatever funds the temple generates through donations by people, by devotees, are all stolen by the government for various purposes, whatever those purposes are. So I have said this in the past. I will say it again today, that India is the world's most Hindu-phobic country. Even in the US, Hindus have more equality. In in, in India, Hindus are second class or third class citizens. So India is a Hindu-phobic apartheid state. And because of that, it is quite possible that Hinduism may may very well vanish or become irrelevant in the next 100 years, unless the people themselves wake up and take certain measures, certain steps. Okay, more questions. Some more questions. (laughs) Okay, so... uh, According to thermodynamics, this is by Pradeep Pandey. According to thermodynamics, energy cannot be created or not destroyed. So how did it come into existence? That's the first question. So that's an interesting question. The energy came into existence because of what the mass energy that was present at the time of the uh, Big Bang. So as we know, according to the best data, the best theory that we have, the standard model of physics, according to this model, the entire universe came into existence from an initial singularity or near singularity, which is the Big Bang. That that process is colloquially colloquially called the Big Bang. It was not an explosion. It was an expansion of space and time. So all that energy and mass was already present therein. And that's where it came from. All the mass, all the energy that's present in the universe today, it was all concentrated in an infinitesimally small point. So all of space-time had shrunk into either a singularity or something very close to that. So that's where all the energy or mass, which are interchangeable, that's where it all comes from. That's where it came into existence from. Now, what was there before the Big Bang? We have absolutely no idea. So so that's the answer to your question. The second question is, opinions on Rashmi theory. It is said it challenges modern physics. Is it bogus? I have never studied it, unfortunately. I haven't had the time. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe, I I, I know this, this is a question I get all the time. Many people have asked this question. Unfortunately, I have not had the time to... Uh, search for it or look for it or I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know as of today what it is. So unfortunately, I still cannot answer the question. I will try and look it up one of these days, hopefully soon and then I will give an answer about Rush B Theory. Whatever that is, sir. Okay. Karl says is it possible for man to achieve immortality in the distant future or can we or can store their consciousness in some machine i don't think it's possible for humans to achieve immortality anytime in the near future immortality means the uh, the immortality of the body obviously now we know that there is a process of aging and after a certain point the body becomes non-functional it just can't sustain life. And so that that is what leads to eventual death after a certain age in all humans. So how do you either reverse or even pause the process of aging? That's what many biologists and researchers are trying to figure out. But um, it seems to be connected to the uh, shortening of what's called the telomeres inside cells. So the telomeres are what are are the ends of the chromosomes and these telomeres they shorten with time as a person ages and maybe this it is believed that this is what contributes to the aging process of humans so it is believed that if we can either stop or reverse the shortening of telomeres in human cells then maybe we may be able to either pause or reverse aging so that's a possibility it is still a theory it is Maybe there is some proof of it, perhaps, to some extent. So that is what they're working on. But that's uh, still a very distant dream. I believe it's still a distant dream. Storing your consciousness, it's still science fiction. We don't even know what consciousness is. What shape? Or is it an emergent property? Is it something else? We have absolutely no idea of of what consciousness is. We don't even have a clear definition of what consciousness is. What is consciousness? We can't even define it clearly. And therefore, um, therefore, it's it's uh, very hard to see this happening anytime in the future, near future, even far future, of being able to store, upload your consciousness into some machine. And let's say hypothetically, theoretically, that you're able to take a copy of your consciousness and and store it in a machine, but that doesn't mean that you're gonna live forever. That your consciousness is gonna be alive forever. It's a copy of your consciousness that's going to live in that machine, but your consciousness is eventually going to die with your body. It's like the um, the scenario in Star Trek, if any of you have seen Star Trek, there is this uh, teleportation machine. So Captain Kirk or whoever it is, they go and stand in, the, in this machine and then the machine uh, seems to transfer the them physically from one place to another. So their body in, in the machine disappears and the body reappears somewhere else. But it's, the truth is that it's a copy of their body that appears there. It's a copy of their consciousness. The original body and the original consciousness is destroyed. So, you know, that's the conundrum. If you create a copy of your consciousness in some machine, even if it were possible, it's not you who is there. It's a copy. So you are going to eventually die anyway, even if a copy of you survives somewhere. So, you know, that that's the... Uh, That's the conundrum of of, uh, these uh, hypothetical scenarios. That even if you can create a copy of your consciousness, you, your consciousness, is going to eventually meet a demise. All right, let's take some more questions. There are lots of questions. Yash Luthra asks, what could be the reasons that people who came out of Africa chose to stay in the Indian subcontinent and not somewhere else in the Arabian land, which is closer to Africa? Well, the conditions in the Indian subcontinent were best suited for having a long-term permanent residence. Uh, so when this out-of-Africa migration happened, it is believed that the Arabian region was at the time kind of green. It was not a desert at the time. So the climate was such that you could live there, you could sustain life there. There were trees, there was vegetation, there were animals, you could hunt and all. But that was a transient phase. Eventually, it all dried out and became desert. So the people who came out of Africa, that small band of humans who came out of Africa, they kept traveling, they kept moving, and they kept looking for some place where you can have a permanent long-term habitation. And that place which they eventually found was the Indian subcontinent. The Indian subcontinent was best suited for living on a permanent basis. It was enormous. It was fertile. There was lots of vegetation. There were forests. There was plenty of wildlife and animals if you want to hunt and so on. And the climate was neither too hot nor too cold and so on, you know. And there was plenty of rainfall. So it was the best place they could have possibly hoped for and that is the reason why they chose to stay in the Indian subcontinent not not somewhere in Arabia or any, any other place but eventually humans are a migratory species even after settling down in India in the Indian subcontinent eventually you had migrations happening all over the place so Eventually, humans went eastwards, they went northwards out of India, they went westwards out of India, populated Europe, and so on. And uh, we came into contact with other hominin, hominid species, such as the Neanderthals, the Denisovans, even possibly Homo habilis, and so on. Because there are a number of ancient lineages that we find in our DNA that are, that are non-homo sapiens. So we know that we all non-african humans have a certain percentage about two to four percent of neanderthal DNA it's like having one great 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 -great grandparent or one great grandparent who was a neanderthal and we also have depending on where you look people have Denisovan heritage one or two percent of that and certain shadow populations that could be perhaps homo habilis or something else So eventually, people did migrate all over the place, out of India as well. But India was the first founder's zone of the out-of-Africa migration because it was the best place and the most suitable place for having a very long-term human habitation. Right, let's see some more questions. Krishna asks, "Could you please talk about DNA test services such as MyHeritage and 23andMe, and why some of the Indians, so many YouTube videos, have European connections?" Uh, so these are D- these are testing services in which I think you uh, provide them a sample of your DNA. It's usually a saliva, a sample of your saliva. You they 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 send you a package in which there is a sample collection thing in which uh, you swab the interior of your mouth and you place that in the receptacle or something and you mail it to them and they will test that for your DNA. They will sequence your DNA and tell you what are your, uh, what kind of heritage you have. So that's what these uh, DNA test services do. It's, I don't know what it costs, maybe a hundred, $200 or something like that. Uh. So the question is, why do some Indians, so many YouTubers, so many YouTube videos, why do Indians have a European connection? Well, because there is a connection. Like I said, India is the original founders zone. It is from India that migrations happened all over Eurasia, into the east of Asia, to the west of Asia, into Europe, and so on and so forth. Even in the past 5000 years, maybe, you had multiple waves of migrations of Indians, Out of India into Europe, the uh, Yamnaya—those people who conquered Europe about five thousand or four and a half thousand years ago and almost replaced the European male genetics—those were Indians. Those were of Indian origin. They—they were of their haplogroup was R1b, which is a descendant of the Indian origin R1 haplogroup. So there is. A very deep connection between India and Europe. Um, so, so that's the reason why so many Indians will have European connection. But it is portrayed in such a manner that the connection has come from Europe into India. That's what is always, that's the way it is always portrayed. That is the that is the, the mainstream perspective that they are trying to perpetuate that whatever connection is, between, is, is is there between India and Europe, genetic connection, has come from Europe into India and not the other way around. That's what they are trying to perpetuate and that is a complete fabrication. There is so much evidence now that totally debunks this claim of of this Aryan invasion or migration from Europe into India. It's the other way round, But to to answer in short that is the reason why so many indians will have be will found, will be found to have some sort of european connection and when when these uh, dna testing services give you the the, the the report they're gonna portray it in such a way that your ancestors lived in europe and then they came into india so that's the that's the mainstream perspective that has been Uh, Prevalent since the 19th century, since the colonial days, the Aryan invasion perspective, and that's still prevalent in Europe and in in Indian academia and in the popular imagination of most Indians because that's what they've been taught. But that is not correct. Ishwara Moody says, which is better, single party or multi-party system in democracy? My question, (laughs) why do we even need political parties? Why can't you just have candidates who stand for election unaffiliated to any party? Why do we need parties? Parties are like it's it's a herd of sheep with a certain agenda. Why do people need to follow a certain agenda? Why can't you just stand for election and your only agenda should be to serve the constituency that has elected you? Why do we even need a party system? Think beyond the box. The party system... It serves certain purposes, it it, uh, it kind of perpetuates certain uh, ways of doing politics, which is not really necessary. It is something that has come out of Europe again. It's something that has come out from the UK, from from England, and that has been transposed into, onto India, right? So ask yourselves, do we need political parties? I I do agree that, you know, in this day and age, in the current political climate, when you have so much going on, you need people who are like-minded to get together and that can be termed as a political party and so on. So, So what is better? Which system is better? You know what? It doesn't matter which system is there as long as it serves the country. Whether you have a single party system, you have a two-party system, you have a 75-party system, you have a dictatorship, you have a monarchy, you have an imperial system, you have a system that is decentralized. It doesn't matter what system it is. The main per the as long as it ensures the long-term success and prosperity of the people and the country, that system is good. I don't care. Whether it is a single-party system, a 10-party system, multi-party system, dictatorship, democracy, monarchy, it doesn't matter. As long as it ensures the long-term prosperity success of the people and the country, it is fine by me. That's the answer. Somya says, Should the Quad give nukes to Taiwan? No. Nobody ever offers nukes to anyone. That's out of technology. Well, actually... It's happened once. Once it happened when the American President Kennedy offered India nuclear weapons technology. He offered Mr. Nehru, the great, great Sri Jawaharlal Nehruji, the great Pandit Ji, the great Chacha Ji. President Kennedy offered Nehru, he offered to transfer American nuclear weapons technology to India and he offered Nehru the chance to make India Asia's first nuclear power. He offered to help India detonate Asia's first nuclear weapon. And Mr. Nehru refused this. And therefore, China was able to become the first nuclear weapons power in, in, in Asia. The thing is, apart from this one instance, one nobody has ever offered nuclear weapons technology to others, except as proxies and so on. I mean, even the Chinese... Transferred low-level nuclear weapons technology to Pakistan to offset India to counterbalance India and so on, but I do not think that the Quad should do that. I don't think the Quad will do that. And even if Taiwan were were to come in possession of nuclear weapons, would it really work for them? Because one of the reasons why Taiwan is so compromised is because all of their uh, many of their businesses are deeply infiltrated by the Chinese, and so on. So it's a complicated situation. I do not think the Quad will offer news to to Taiwan. The Quad is India, Australia, the US, and Japan. So only two of these four countries are nuclear weapons powers, India and the US. Now, is India willing to antagonize China by transferring nuclear weapons to Taiwan. That would be an extraordinarily grave provocation. And would the US be willing to uh, offer nuclear weapons to Taiwan? They don't need to. They have nuclear submarines patrolling that region all the time. So there are nuclear weapons there in in that region. And they also have uh, ballistic missiles, etc. that can deliver nuclear weapons. So the U.S. has positioned itself as the guarantor of security for Taiwan. And as such, they have the nuclear heft, the nuclear might, to offset the Chinese and to keep, them, keep the Chinese in check. And therefore, there is no real reason to actually transfer nuclear weapons to Taiwan. So that's the reason why it will not happen. Illuminati Creek says, can India launch an invasion of Tibet? I think it's a little early to consider that possibility. India needs to develop its military might much more than what it is right now. Uh, we need a much more powerful air force to provide this, the necessary air power. And we need uh, significantly more tanks if if we want to launch an invasion of Tibet. Of course, tanks cannot cross the Himalayas, but one can find ways of airdropping tanks via helicopters, etc. if we have sufficient numbers of helicopters and so on. So, you know, it's a complicated thing. I don't think India is currently in a position to be able to contemplate such a thing seriously. But in the future, if we develop our military might more, if we kind of double our air force strength, and so on, then we may be able to do that in the future. But it's going to take at least 10 years minimum to be able to reach that sort of uh, level of of capability, of military capability. Amog Chavan says, What is the importance of the citizen in geopolitics? And what can we, the citizens of India, do for India in geopolitics? Unfortunately, there's not much the citizens can do. The best you can do is elect the right leaders. The right kind of leader who knows how to deal with various geopolitical scenarios. So that is the best we can do. Apart from that, there is no real role of the citizen, of the individual in geopolitics, which is a game that is played at the global level. Uh, That is great power competition. It is where you move these big pieces on the chessboard, aircraft carriers, uh, destroyers, submarines, armed forces, air force uh, uh, assets and so on. And also your diplomatic assets. You go, you create alliances and networks of power and all that. So this is done at, a, at the highest level of governance. The citizens, unfortunately unfortunately cannot participate in this. And there are so many state secrets that citizens are not aware of, right? And so on. So there's not really much a citizen, an individual can contribute to the nation on the geopolitical scale. The best thing we can do is to elect the right leaders, the strongest and best possible leaders who can serve the country in the right way on the geopolitical domain. Ashish Ranjan says, how did Japan get so powerful in having such a great human resource? Um, let me try and understand what that means. So Japan does have an excellent um, industrial system. It has uh, the most advanced industrial system in the world, the best technologies come out of Japan. It is the most technologically advanced society on the planet. It is technologically more advanced than the United States, than European countries, than China, than anybody else. So how did this happen? It's because the Japanese system was reformed, beginning with the Meiji Reformation I think in the sometime in the second half of the 19th century. So that was a conscious effort to industrialize and westernize Japan. It succeeded in the industrialization front, but it failed in eradicating Buddhism, etc. from Japan. So that was the first thing. And then after the uh, debacle of the Second World War, in which Japan was was defeated very badly, it was nuked twice, etc., the Japanese came under American occupation, which, well, you could say it still continues today. But the Japanese rebuilt their economy and uh, they turned it into a very efficient machine, industrial machine. They, they emphasized on performance, on meritocracy and all that. And this is a system that enabled them to rebuild the country out of the ashes of the Second World War to create a very powerful economy which was the number two economy in the world until the 1980s or 1990s, I think. And then it fell into a recession and, and so on, but it is still an extraordinarily strong economy. And it is one of the most advanced industrial sectors in the world. So it's it's a, it's a long process. It did not happen in in five or 10 years. It is something that began in the second half of the 19th century. And its legacy was carried forward year after year, decade after decade. And that is the reason why Japan was able to become so powerful in its industrial, technological, and other sectors. Even the military, for some Even today, Japan is a very powerful military. It is a very powerful navy. The Chinese are afraid of the Japanese submarine force and so on. Japan is also considered to be a shadow nuclear power, which means that they can... If they need, they can come up with nuclear weapons next week. So, And they also have delivery systems, excellent rockets, and so on. So that is the reason why they have been able to achieve this level of competence and excellence in all these spheres. Okay, some more questions. Bluebird03 asks, can China divide India into many small countries? Well, they wish, they they want to do that. They have many of their uh, thinkers, strategists, even generals have written about this in the past, in the past two decades and even before that. And they have been trying to foment insurgencies, etc. in India, in various parts of the country for decades. So it is very much a desire of theirs to break up, to balkanize India. It is one of their great dreams. And it is one of the great dreams of Pakistan as well to do this. So they that's why these two countries are allies. They wish to do it. Can they do it? Well, it all depends on us, on what uh, policies and strategies we adopt. I mean, we ha- everybody has enemies. It all depends on you, how strong you become through your own efforts. And then it's up to you whether you allow such uh, such nefarious schemes to succeed or not. So China does wish to do it, but I don't think it is possible for China to do it right now. India does have internal problems, lots of internal problems and so on. But India is still, as of today, strong enough to withstand such uh, attempts to divide it from within. But we have to be ever vigilant. We have to Find ways of quickly resolving all the internal problems, etc that we have in order to ensure that this never happens. So I would say as of today, China is not in a, in a in a position to be able to divide India or to break India up, but it does desire to do that. Shyam says, asks, is China's next target Arunachal Pradesh after Taiwan? I don't think China would want to uh, do a genuine military misadventure vis-a-vis India in Arunachal Pradesh or anywhere else. Because, well, India is not an aggressive and expansionist country. But I think India's military is strong enough to defend its territory. And if China crosses certain red lines, then China can, well... Can face serious trouble. So, China's main goal, main objective is Taiwan. China's economy is crumbling right now. It is completely stalled. There is almost no economic growth. There are several crises, the Evergrande crisis, and so on. There are many other problems that are that have been hidden, and have not uh, have been kind of swept swept under the carpet. So, China seems to be uh, undergoing some kind of economic crisis right now, which may. Uh, influence its leaders to perhaps make some rash choices and do things that would not be advisable for their own interests. So it is possible that China may try and invade Taiwan sometime in the near or medium term future. China is uh, behaving very aggressively with with Taiwan right now. All these aerial incursions by the Chinese air force into Taiwanese airspace and so on. So the question is, what is China actually planning to do? Is it planning to invade Taiwan sometime soon? And if it invades Taiwan, what should India respond? How should India respond? What should our response be like? So these are scenarios that are evolving right now. I do not really think the Chinese would be stupid enough to target Arunachal Pradesh. They could, I think they will not succeed India has very strong defenses. India has very strong plans of defending its territory. If the Chinese were to try it, they would suffer a very bad defeat. I am certain of that. And that would undermine the Chinese Communist Party's legitimacy in the eyes of its citizens. That that could undermine the very basis of power of the Chinese Communist Party. I don't think, therefore, that China would target Arunachal Pradesh, if it would it would face a terrible defeat and if it would cross a certain red line then india does have the capability to to stay, to send china back into the stone age so they know that they should they are well advised not to try any misadventure when it comes to india's territorial boundaries okay next question let's see Jerry asks, why is the Indian government not showing any kind of interest in archaeological excavations? Uh, well, I would, <laughs> I cannot answer on behalf of the Indian government. I have said this many times in the past. It's very disappointing. I think India's uh, Ministry of Tourism and Culture is one of the least performing ministries, one of the poorest Performing ministries in the government, they're uh, they're basically doing nothing essentially. I am not sure if the ASI etc. comes under them. Most likely, it does. And the ASI is another uh, very badly performing organization, institution, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Why is there no interest in archaeology? Why is there no interest in 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 uncovering our real history, etc.? Why is nothing being done? I don't know. I wish I had answers. I do not have answers. I am very disappointed. It's been seven years and yet nothing has been done. So it's very disappointing. That's all I can see. I don't know why it is the way it is. It's disappointing. Deepan Bhattacharya says, can dark matter be discovered through using gravitational lensing? We can detect the, the presence of dark matter through gravitational lensing. So gravitational lensing is when the presence of a mass distorts the the path of light, which causes galaxies and other objects to, to appear distorted when we look at them. So when you have nothing apparently between you and the galaxy, and yet the galaxy is distorted, it is curved or whatever, in the form of an Einstein ring or whatever, in that case, you know that there is the presence of an invisible mass there, which is dark matter. So we can detect the presence of dark matter using gravitational lensing, but we cannot detect what the dark matter is using gravitational lensing. So these are two separate things. We can find the location of uh, dark matter distributions using these phenomena, but we can't tell what dark matter is, what kind of particle it is through gravitational lensing. Dungar Singh Chauhan says, is capitalism and privatization necessary for the development of India? Or is there any other way? I think the fastest way to develop the country in the current scenario is through capitalism and privatization. That is the fastest way to do it. Uh, There are better ways, of course. I mean, if you look at the if you study the Arthashastra, there is a whole section on economics, which is non-capitalistic, right? So that is a better way, but it would take a much longer amount of time to build up India to that status, which it, it, it historically had of being the world's largest economy. So to achieve that status very quickly, as quickly as is humanly possible, we would need to Adopt capitalism and privatization. That is that is something we can adopt as a temporary short to medium term solution. And later on, as India becomes more prosperous, we can change the system to suit our civilization and culture better. Capitalism is all about seeking endless profits, endless expansion, quarter upon quarter profits, quarter upon quarter ex- expansion of companies. You cannot have runaway, infinite expansion on a finite planet. It is eventually going to destroy all the resources and destroy the entire planet. And that is what we are doing right now. This process, this capitalism has been uh, in play for at least a couple of centuries, exploitation of the planet, seeing everything in the planet as resources to be used. And today, all of what we are seeing, all the climate change, all the pollution, all the deforestation, all the uh, pollution of the ocean with plastics, et cetera, it's all a consequence of this this mentality of using the planet as nothing more than a resource to be exploited. So that is a consequence of of, uh, uncontrolled, capitalism so this is a problem capitalism if it is allowed to go on will destroy the planet and i am when i criticize capitalism you should not take it to mean that i am in favor of uh what's the opposite communism socialism is it no marxism no i am not in favor of, of communism marxism socialism either There are better ways, the Indian way is the best way, what we have followed for thousands of years. We had the world's greatest and most massive economy without indulging in such practices that would destroy the planet. But right now, if you want to compete with the other economies, we have to go the same way. So temporarily, we need to privatize and we need to uh, use the tactics and strategies of capitalism for now. truth digger says if china invades taiwan what are the priorities for india if or when china invades taiwan india needs to immediately without wasting even one hour india needs to immediately secure nepal bhutan and sri lanka that's what india needs to do immediately the moment the chinese invade taiwan secure nepal secure bhutan secure sri lanka Now I am not advocating an outright invasion and occupation of these countries. Maybe some of these places will need Indian boots on their soil. In the case of Sri Lanka, it may not be required, but India's navy will need to become involved and safeguard uh, Sri Lanka. In the case of Nepal and Bhutan, we may have no option but to send Indian armed forces to secure these territories from possible Chinese uh, misadventures. So that's what India needs to do. The moment the Chinese invade Taiwan, we need to secure Nepal, Bhutan and Sri Lanka. That's what India needs to do, in my opinion. Okay, Harsh Kumar asks... In the future, if the US would be able to counter China, then their next target would be India. What can India do to prevent that? The best policy for India is to become as strong as possible, as quickly as possible. If you are economically and militarily strong enough, then nobody can harm you. So, India needs to, right now, India needs, India right now, as of today, is not a great power. We are not a great power today. We are maybe a middle power at best today. So, as of today, we need to play the game of geopolitics. We need to have alliances or quasi-alliances with countries such as the US, which are far away, in order to offset China, which is an aggressive and expansionist nation. There is no such thing as China's peaceful rise. So as of today, it is in our favor, it is in our interest to ally with countries like the US, Australia, Japan and any other country which shares our uh, our worldview. But in the long run, if the US prevails, then certainly they will not want India to rise too much. The US doesn't want any kind of competition and neither does China. So the only option for India, the only long term option for India is to rise again economically and militarily. We need to ensure that we are so strong that nobody dares to contemplate you know, uh, targeting us in any way either through economic means or through military means. So that has to be India's long-term objective. And that is something India needs to achieve in the next 10-20 years maximum to at least make sure that uh, we are safe from any any uh, malign force that would seek to destroy us. Red Chili asks, will India capture China? I do not want India to capture China what what will India gain by capturing China? We have never been an expansionist country. It is not part of our culture or civilization and I would not advocate trying to capture China. Uh, What we need to do is to free Tibet so that we have a peaceful northern border. We need to free Tibet and we need to decontaminate Tibet from all the Chinese influences. That is all we need to do. There is no point trying to capture China. China is so far away. Tibet is of course our neighbor, but Tibet is not truly Chinese territory. It is temporarily in the hands of China. Once we free Tibet, that has to be the end of it. What is the point of going all the way far away to China, thousands of kilometers away, and capturing it? What do we gain from that? We will be overstretching ourselves if we try that. So so my answer is no, India will not capture China. India should not have any such uh, <laughs> aspirations. What India should aspire for is to have a powerful economy again, a strong military again, and to have a peaceful and stable northern border, which is the Tibetan border. We need to free Tibet or ensure its freedom. And we need a peaceful and stable western border, which means that we need to deal with the Pakistan issue. And we need to regain our land access to Afghanistan. So these are the things that India needs to achieve in the short to medium term future and that's what india needs to do not think of capturing china it it serves no purpose for india tony stark says why is the history of china and japan not included in in school textbooks my name is arka benerji well arka Even the true history of India is not included in in India's school textbooks, right? I mean, we are taught very small uh, portions of Indian history and that to sanitize and distorted portions of India's history. We are not taught about any of the great native dynasties, emperors, kings, queens. and, And most of our history, we don't even know about it. It's not taught. So, if we don't even learn our own history, do you really expect the textbooks to teach Chinese history or Japanese history or European history or anything? No, it simply won't happen. It is, of course, beneficial to teach world history as well, as, apart from Indian history. But that is something that will happen only when the Indian education system is reformed in such a way that it actually serves the purpose of educating the people of India. So the reason why it's this all of this is not happening is because our education system is still deeply colonized it is still following the same patterns that you had in the education system the british imposed upon india in the 19th century it is very much a continuation of the same system and that's why we are not taught either our own history properly or the history of any other of any other culture or country Write some more questions. Aryan Kumar asks, "Where the Khiljis and Lodis, Were the Turks or Afghans? I hope my question gets picked. Well, your question got picked. (laughs) Uh, The Khiljis were Mamluks, I think. No, I I don't think, I know. The Khiljis were Mamluks. So people like Allah, ad Khilji, etc. These were Mamluks. So what what are the Mamluks? The Mamluks were slaves. This was a slave dynasty. The word Mamluk means slave in Arabic. Now, a slave can be from any part of the world. You had Egyptian Mamluks. You had Turkic Mamluks. And you had Iranian Mamluks also, I expect. But the the Khiljis were Turkic Mamluks. So you had these... So the Arabs would take these uh, people as slaves uh, and then they would employ them in the armed forces as soldiers and if they showed sufficient tactical and strategic abilities then they would be elevated to the position of a general. If they showed even more abilities, they would be given the role or task of administering a certain province but they would still be considered to be slaves, they would still be officially slaves. And eventually, as certain dynasties crumbled, these slave administrators became kings or rulers in their own right. And that is what the Mamluk dynasty was. These were former slaves who conquered parts, certain parts of India on behalf of their masters, but eventually they became independent of their masters and they became rulers of whatever portion of India they had conquered so Aladdin Khilji and his dynasty was a Mamluk dynasty, a slave dynasty, they were Turks I believe the Lodhis were also Turks If I am not 100% sure about that but I, I am positive that the Lodhis too were, 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 were Turks so that's the answer but I would request you to please verify that This is a good question by Garima. How is social media influencing the next generation of India? So it is very influential in India, social media. Today you have uh, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, WhatsApp, and um, what else? You had TikTok, which has been banned now, and so on. So you have all these different social media platforms that are very influential, especially among the children, among the teenagers and young adults, very influential. So uh, Twitter and Facebook, uh, Facebook too, right? So Twitter and Facebook became prominent, I think, about 10 or so years ago in India. It kind of revolutionized the entire uh, cultural and social landscape in India because it was a very big boon initially. Because for the first time in a thousand years, the people of india were able to express themselves and connect with each other this happened for the first time in about in in a thousand years the people of india ha- were able to express themselves and voice their opinions criticize the government criticize the media criticize the powers that be and so on and they were able to connect with each other so that's how people from all across india were able to connect with each other create uh, have friendships and various kinds of relationships, either professional relationships, business relationships or whatever, right? So social media was a great boon at that time. Then slowly you had all the uh, all these policies that were that began to be implemented which kind of uh, stifled social media. It, there were now we have a great deal, a great amount of social media censorship, especially on Twitter, right, in which you're not able to, you're not allowed to express your opinions freely, and so on and so forth. And because of that, you find that certain political ideologies are allowed to express themselves, whereas certain other ideologies are not allowed to express themselves. So you find that a platform like Twitter, for instance, has become extremely left-leaning, in India, it is very much pro-opposition, anti-government. And when you talk about the opposition, you understand what sort of political and religious leanings that signifies. So you find that people are not able to express certain opinions on Twitter. And because of that, it influences these uh, inexperienced youngsters in. Uh, Imbibing and absorbing certain political leanings and ideologies, and you see that very, very, very strongly in the opinions that youngsters express. You know, so this is actually a form of social engineering. Uh, so that's what's happening right now. So social, so, so social media was initially a great boon for India, but today it is becoming dangerous for India because it is essentially foreign interference in the internal matters of india you see uh, certain politicians getting banned i think uh, certain mps were forced to de- to delete certain tweets because twitter did not like them i'm just talking about twitter here but many of it applies much of it applies to certain other social media platforms as well i'm sure so you have The absence of freedom of speech. You have censorship. And because of that, certain political leanings and ideologies are promoted. And that is influencing the youngsters in India. And you can see the effect of that in the opinions they express and so on. So it is dangerous. It is interference by foreign powers in India's internal matters. And something needs to be done about it right so so that's what's happening okay this is a question by sumit was india and africa part of the same landmass thousands of years ago if so does the migration from africa involve migration from india as well okay we have to understand the chronology India and Africa, yes, Sumit, were very much part of the same landmass about a hundred million years ago. And then India separated from Africa because of tectonic activity. And it began a long journey of thousands of kilometers from Africa all the way into the Eurasian landmass. So this journey took at least 60-70 million years and eventually India collided with the Eurasian landmass and this enormous cataclysmic collision which happened in very slow motion, it led to the emergence of the Himalayan mountain range which is the tallest mountain range on the planet. So this happened over a very long period of time, tens of millions of years, right? Now. If you look at the history of humanity, Homo sapiens is less than 250,000 years old. Up, let's say it's a quarter of a million years old and the earliest, oldest humans are about 2 million years old. So humans and chimpanzees diverged about 2 million years ago. By the time, India was already part of the Eurasian landmass. So when India and Africa were together, About 100 million years approximately ago, there was no humans. We did not have humans at the time. We had dinosaurs that ruled our planet. So this this movement of India from Africa into, into Eurasia took millions of years. And this greatly predates the emergence of humans as a species. So the migration from Africa It has nothing to do do with the tectonic activity which occurs over geological timescales. Humanity is is very recent, extremely recent. Homo sapiens is about a quarter of a million years old, approximately. So so to to summarize my answer, the geological activity, the tectonic activity has nothing to do with the out-of-Africa migration of humans because there was no humanity at the time. There were no human beings on the planet at the time. Okay, some more questions, some more questions. Krish asks, uh, any practical tips for studying the history of a particular place or era? I sometimes get lost while studying foreign history due to Familiarity, Reliability, Relatability gone. Okay, what advice can I give for studying the history of a particular place of era? The best advice I can give you is to not rely on a single book or a single video. Try and look at this specific place or era from multiple perspectives, from the perspectives of multiple researchers, multiple authors. So read multiple books, read as many articles as you can, research papers, journal articles, national geographic articles, or whatever you like. And only then will you be able to get a comprehensive picture of the true uh, nature of that place or that particular era. Because if you rely on one person, on one author or one YouTuber or whatever it is, then you will get only one perspective. That's why you should look at different angles and try and see as many different uh, perspectives of different authors and researchers as possible. That's the right way to study history. So that's the answer. It takes time, but that's the best way to learn and grow. Arnav Khare asks, where does India stand in the next decade as a civilization? And should we become a hard power or remain a soft power? (laughs) Uh, What major changes should be brought in the education system? Thank you. I think I have have an entire episode on the education system. So you can look at that, right? I think it's episode 30, 31, thereabouts. Uh, The first question is, where does India stand in the next decade as a civilization? India is no longer a civilization. India is now merely a nation state india is not a civilization because india's because india's institutions india's law and india's india's laws and india's constitution are not rooted in indian culture and therefore india is no longer a civilization india no longer has the, that status india ceased to be a civilization on august 15 1947 india is now merely a nation state which is tragic should we become a hard power or remain a soft power? India should become a hard power. Soft power is a mirage. I, I don't understand why so many Indians are so obsessed with soft power, soft power, soft power, soft power. Soft power is useless, it's worthless unless it is backed up by actual hard power. The only real power is hard power. So that's what India needs to pursue. Right. I think I have some questions which I had selected. Some people had asked me. Let me take up some of those questions. I have three questions from the comments that I had picked up. So here is question number one. This is by Andrew. Andrew asks, can you talk about the diet during the Vedic times? Has vegetarianism always been prominent in India? So when we talk about the Vedic times, the Vedic era is the earliest literary era in India. That's where the oldest literature... Of our civilization comes from the Rig Veda and the other Vedas. The Puranas may actually be even older than that. But if you look at the oldest corpus of literature of our civilization and culture, then we find that vegetarian, vegetarianism is the is regarded as the uh, superior lifestyle choice. So India's culture has always. Uh, regarded non-violence as the highest ideal and non-violence of course includes not slaughtering helpless animals so uh, vegetarianism has always been regarded as the highest ideal as the superior way of living of course it was not a compulsion it was not forced on people india has always had some people certain population certain parts of the population that Uh, were non-vegetarian who would eat meat. It's always been there. But uh, but vegetarianism was always regarded as the highest ideal. So the diet was mixed, I would say, during Vedic times. Maybe the majority of the population was vegetarian, but there would always be some people who were non-vegetarian. And the archaeological record of India shows this. We find plenty of evidence of fish hooks, and harpoons from various eras of India civilization, including the Harappan era, the Harappan phase of India civilization, and so on and so forth. So we know that people have eaten meat throughout India's history. And yet we also know that our, um, that India's ancient texts and India's culture have always promoted vegetarianism as the superior way of living. So I would say that India's diet during Vedic times would possibly have been predominantly vegetarian, but some people would certainly be eating meat for sure. The next question is, uh, okay, this asks the, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name, but the question is that I was wondering, what do you think about Gobekli Tepe? You have claimed that the Indus civilization is the oldest civilization, but research on Gobekli Tepe proves otherwise. Okay, good question. I'm glad you asked this. So, uh, as we know, the oldest archaeological sites in India are about nine and a half or 10,000 years old. And this is the uh, earliest pre-Harappan phase, they call it of india's civilization now gobekli tepe which is a loca- which is uh, a settlement in anatolia eastern turkey present day eastern turkey gobekli tepe is about 11000 years old so it predates uh, the earliest known archaeological site in the indus region so does it mean that this is an older civilization. So to answer this question, we have to ask ourselves, what is a civilization? If we find one settlement somewhere, does that represent a civilization? If you look at the size of Gobekli Tepe, one would say that it represents a community of maybe 200 or 500 people or 1000 people. Is a community of 1000 people a civilization? does it represent a civilization? Even if you have one single settlement, one single archaeological site, does that represent a civilization? Or if you have a cluster of five archaeological sites, does that make a civilization? No. A civilization is an enormous thing. If you look at the Indus valley or Harappan phase of India's civilization, it spanned a geographical region that was larger than Egypt and Mesopotamia put together. It was an enormous geographical region. There are thousands of archaeological sites in this region. That is a civilization. All these archaeological sites show characteristics of the same culture. Of the same people, the same standardization of weights and measures, the same script, the same kind of pottery and so on across thousands of years. That is a civilization. One archaeological site is not a civilization. Even a cluster of five archaeological sites is not a civilization. A civilization is much bigger than that, much bigger. And this is not the fault of the viewers. Many of you have the question it's not your fault that you don't understand this if you look at India's textbooks history textbooks they don't teach you what a civilization is if you look at India's media every time they find some new archaeological site Keeladi Shivagalai or somewhere else they will say oh we have a new Keeladi civilization we have a new Shivagalai civilization every single archaeological site is represented or portrayed as a new civilization This is idiotic. It is the fault of the Indian media, of the Indian academic and education system that people don't understand what a civilization is. A civilization is an enormous thing. You need tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people to make a civilization. It needs to have a common culture, a common unifying language. It needs to have institutions and laws that are rooted in the native indigenous culture and so on, that's what makes a civilization, a single archaeological site is not a civilization. So now Gobekli Tepe is just one site, there are 2-3 other sites around it, that is not a civilization, it's just a cluster of archaeological sites. It is certainly older than the oldest known Indus valley archaeological site. But we should also understand that we have excavated less than 1% of the archaeological sites in the Saptasindhu region. There are thousands of unexplored archaeological sites along the river systems, along the river Saraswati, along the other rivers that have never been excavated. Once we start doing that, we will find older and older archaeological sites. I think India's archaeological record will go back At least another 10,000 years. Way older than Gobekli Tepe and and anything else. So that's where we are today. So that's what I have to say about Gobekli Tepe. I still uh, stand by what I have said that in the Indus Valley, the, the Harappan phase of India's civilization is the oldest phase of any civilization anywhere in the world. Right? I hope that explains it. One more question. This is by Syed Imtiaz Anwar, who is from Pakistan. So, uh, Imtiaz says, Pharaoh Ramses, circa 1450 BCE, went north of Egypt to protect the Egyptian realm at the time from invaders called the Mitanni Empire. He was outflanked by them initially because they had new technology. The chariot that the Egyptians had never seen before, they captured some of these chariots, engineered their own, that were even better than the Mithani, and then they used it to defeat the Hittites, etc. The question is, I have seen pictures of Lord Krishna on chariots that I believe predates the Mitanni. So is it possible that the Mithani learned the technology from the folks living in the subcontinent? Or the Mithani themselves were offshoots of the people living in the subcontinent? What do you think? Good question, sir. So, who are these Mithani? You are right. The Egyptians, Pharaoh Ramses, I think it was, uh, went northwards to to engage in warfare with these people, the Mitanni, the Hittites, etc. And uh, so the question is, who were the Mitanni? So, archaeological evidence shows that the Mitanni had a ruling class, an aristocracy that spoke Vedic Sanskrit, late Vedic Sanskrit. So, this is known from a number of uh, sources, a number of uh, archaeological evidences. There is a, a horse training manual by a Kikuli horse master uh, by a Mitani horse master named Kikuli, in which he writes. He has written the horse training manual in the Hurrian language, the local language, but he has used certain technical terms in Sanskrit because there are no technical terms for. for those, those terms are not translatable into the local language. So he was forced to use Sanskrit terminology in there. And then there is a treaty, an official treaty between the Mitanni Empire and the Hittites, I think, in which the Vedic gods, Mitra, Varuna, etc., Indra, etc., were invoked as witnesses. So you have multiple pieces of evidence that show that the Mitanni had an Indo-Aryan so-called Indo-Aryan Sanskrit-speaking aristocracy, ruling class. And we know the names of the kings, Tashrath and so on, all Sanskrit names. So, what this tells us is that the Mitanni are the evidence of a population that migrated westwards out of India about 2000 BCE or around 1500 BCE. And they conquered or settled in this region, Anatolia, And they became the ruling class, the aristocracy. Right? That's what we know. And their their capital was called Vashukhanni. Vashukhanni is a Sanskrit word which means um, mine of treasure. So that's what we know about the Mitanni. Now, we also had the Hittites who were again an Indo-European Sanskrit speaking people most likely. And then you had an invasion of Egypt by a people from the north approximately 1450 BCE Somewhere around that that, uh, time period, these people came from the north. They invaded and conquered Egypt and ruled it for 100 or 150 years. The Egyptians called them the Hyksos, the Hyksos invaders. These invaders worshipped a thunder god. That sounds like Indra. They had technology like the chariot. They had bronze weapons, advanced weapons and so on which were all introduced into Egypt because of their invasion and conquest. So, uh, if you look at uh, the mainstream consensus of history, of historians in the West, they claim that these were uh, Middle Eastern people uh, who worshipped some Babylonian god or something. They they try to say that this was the god Baal, not the god Indra and so on. But I think that Once we dig deeper into this matter, we will find that even these invaders, the Hyksos were of Indo-Aryan origin, most likely. So to answer your question, Imtiaz, uh, it is clear that the Mitanni are a population of ancient Indians who migrated westwards and settled down in present-day Anatolia, in present-day Turkey. And uh, yeah, they had the chariot, they had advanced technology that the Egyptians did not have at the time. And it's because of these Mitanni, the Hittites and the invading Hyksos, who were very closely related to these guys. That's how all this technology made its way into Egypt. Now about Lord Krishna on chariots and all, yeah, we know Lord Krishna was the charioteer. Of, uh, of the great warrior Arjun and so on. So yes, it is quite possible that this technology made its way westwards from India with the Mitanni and then eventually it spread into Egypt from there. So very interesting question, very good question. And I'm glad you are showing interest in this, in your own heritage. Great to see that. Okay, let's take some more questions. Rekha asks, Socrates came to India and met an Indian yogi and discussed human life. Please answer. I I don't know. There is no evidence as far as as I understand that Socrates ever came to India. So it's possible that he may have had some interactions with Indian philosophers in Greece because Indians used to travel everywhere. So it is entirely possible this may have happened. But I don't think there is any record or any evidence of Socrates ever having actually come physically to India. So to the best of my knowledge, this has not happened. This did not happen. Kishore asks, why is Punjabi so similar to the Hindi language? Well, not only Punjabi, all these languages are quite similar. These are all languages that are daughter or granddaughter or great 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 granddaughter languages of our ancestral civilizational language Sanskrit. And that's why they're all so similar. They're all so closely interrelated whether it is Punjabi or Hindi or Marwari or Gujarati or Sindhi or Bhojpuri or Marathi and so on and so forth. Even southern Indian languages like, like Kannada, Telugu, uh, Tamil, Malayalam, etc. have a great deal, great amount of Sanskrit vocabulary and so on. So it is all because our ancient ancestral civilizational language was Sanskrit, which is most likely the oldest known language. Maybe Tamil, maybe some other languages may be also quite old, but I think Sanskrit is the oldest known language in human history. And that's why all of these languages have so many commonalities, so many common features, very similar grammar, very similar vocabulary and so on and so forth. That is the reason why. Okay, some more questions. There are so many interesting questions here. Shyam asks, is soft power a myth in geopolitics? Yes. Soft power is of no use in geopolitics. Soft power is useful when you already have hard power and when you can enforce your writ and your culture across the world. So soft power is something you should pursue only after you become a proper hard power. You can also certainly develop your soft power, your culture, etc. while simultaneously developing hard power. But the emphasis always has to be on hard power. You cannot stop an invasion with soft power. Right? So that's why it is a myth in geopolitics. As Menor asks, can a private institution be established for teaching the real history geopolitics and survive the backlash in India? Well, certainly a private institution can be established to do all this. Uh, One could hire a number of talented historians and researchers, and one could commission a series of books that teach the proper history of India, that explain geopolitics, etc. That would need funding. It, it, it takes funding to create an institution or in, an institute and to pay the salaries of all these researchers and uh, historians, teachers, etc. So yes, it is certainly feasible, but it will take a sizable, significant amount of resources, of money especially. So it is possible, yes, you're right. Povnit Kiran asks my views on celibacy. I think celibacy is a choice. That's all I can say about it. Uh, It has had a significant, um, um, an important uh, role to play in Indian history, in in culture, in, in philosophy, spiritualism, all that. But after all, it is a person's individual choice, what path they want to follow. It has its benefits and so on, right? So it, it's all about what you want individually in your life. So based on that, you can make a choice of whether you want to remain celibate or, or get married and live a worldly life. So it's a personal choice, I would say. Okay, a couple more questions. Ashray asks, "Where the Yamnaya, one of the defeated tribes from the battle of the 10 kings? Good question. It is a possibility. It all depends on when this battle took place. So we know that the Yamnaya rampaged through Europe about 4,500 years ago. But we also know that about 4,500 years ago was the mature phase of the so-called Harappan era of India's civilization, when India was a large, enormous, urban civilization. Now the Battle of the Ten Kings seems to depict an India that was not urban, an India which was much less populated than during the Harappan era. So. if this battle took place maybe thousand two thousand years before uh, the Harappan mature, mature phase, then perhaps one of these defeated clans could have been the ancestors of the Yamnaya, possibly. So the possibility is certainly there, but we unfortunately have not been able to comprehensively and definitively date the battle of the ten kings even if we can place it in a certain millennium that would help significantly as of today nobody has made the effort which is disappointing but so i can't really tell you for sure whether the yamnaya were one of the defeated clans or tribes but it is certainly a possibility that needs to be taken that needs to be considered seriously Okay, Vedant asks, we see towns in Ladakh and Jammu and Kashmir are Chinese language names. Can this be changed and will it create geopolitical pressure on India from China? Okay, so I personally haven't come across towns in Ladakh or Jammu and Kashmir that that have Chinese names. I personally have never come across this. So, So I'm not entirely sure if uh, this is correct so but you know what i will i will verify this i'll try and find if there are any towns in our territory that have chinese names i think it's quite unlikely so that's what i can say as of today as of right now right let's take one more question, perhaps. Ravi Teja Malisetti asks uh, How can you <laughs> be so calm after knowing what's happening in the world? I am unable to study after I started reading history and watching the news. Please help. First of all, I would uh, request you to, I would, I would suggest it's not really beneficial to watch the news cycle. It, it hypes everything up. It makes it feel like the world is ending on a daily basis. There are all these so-called debates. There are nothing more than shouting matches. You have 27 people on the screen and they're all shouting at each other. It does. I have stopped watching the news for at least two years. I have missed nothing. That's the first thing I would say. So I think you could perhaps consider not watching the news that much studying history well you have to know the facts about the world the world is a complex place things are not always the way they should be there is a lot of injustice there has been especially in the case of india uh things we know what happened it's terrible the past 1000 years have been a have been a terrible terrible phase of india's history but you know what there's no point becoming uh, becoming unhappy or not calm, things that are not in your control, you should not worry about them too much. What you can control is what you do with your own personal life. I I think you are a very young person. So what you can do to change the world or shape the world to some extent is develop yourself to the fullest possible extent you can, to your fullest potential. That is something you can control. So, work on that, uh, place all your emphasis on that, Pour, invest all your energies and time into developing yourself into the best possible person you can be and in once you do that you will be able to have a positive impact on the shape of history possibly. So that is something that's in your control. There is no point getting upset or angry. Or feeling helpless about things that are not in your control right so that is one way of looking at the world that will ensure that you stay calm and focused on the things that you actually can control so that is what i can say to you ravi okay let me take one more change one more question sorry one more question Okay, <laughs> if the Aryan invasion wasn't real, then why do people like the Jats have more step DNA than others? What is step DNA? Where did it come from? When they put a label like Iranian ancestry or step DNA or, or whatever, my question is what came before that? What is the ancestry of this so-called step DNA? The step DNA is the Yamnaya DNA, yes? Now, what is the ancestry of the Yamnayas? The Yamnaya are all male. They were male conquerors. Their patrilineal lineage was R1B. All right? That is their patrilineal lineage. R1B is a child lineage of the R1 patrilineal lineage. Now, let me inform you (laughs) that the R1 lineage and the R lineage. originated in Bharatvarsh in the Indian subcontinent and therefore this step DNA itself came from India and that is why there are people, some people in India who have this DNA, this this lineage and the geneticists are trying to portray that as having come from the Central Asian step but that genetic lineage of the Central Asian step itself came from India before that they will not tell you this and that is why people seem to have dna that came from central asia but it is actually something that came out of india went to central asia then came back into india so that is the answer my friends all right that that is it for today thank you so much for participating thank you so much for your questions i am very grateful that you all attend these sessions that you all ask all of these wonderful questions. And we shall do this again tomorrow, same time, same channel. So until then, I will say, have a good day, have a good night, take care, and I'll see you tomorrow. Bye.